Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host Simon Skidmore. This season we've been working our way through the book of Revelation. As we've seen, Revelation employs various images and symbols to encourage the seven churches of Asia Minor to continue steadfastly in their faith, despite the persecution they are experiencing. John shows that God is still in control, and although it may take some time, justice will eventually be established upon the earth. When the Lamb loosed the seven seals of the scroll, we saw mimetic violence spread throughout the earth as people engaged in war with one another. While the inhabitants of the earth are consumed with their own mimetic rivalry, Jesus' disciples resist the temptation to engage in rivalry with others. In the midst of the chaos, heaven is silent for about half an hour, suggesting that God seems absent and maybe even reluctant to intervene. But then six angels sound six trumpets, revealing the suffering that mimetic violence unleashes upon the earth. As a natural consequence of mimetic rivalry, this suffering represents a kind of natural justice visited upon the inhabitants of the land. Today we pick up the story in Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives for ever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There would be no more delay." but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him, Give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. As is common in apocalyptic literature, John is met by another heavenly messenger who guides him through the next stage of his vision. The clouds, rainbow and fire which clothe this angel portray his otherworldly splendor. The angel then tells John to seal up the contents of the thunder's revelation, that is, withhold this revelation from the seven churches of Asia Minor. Whatever these seven thunders utter, we are not meant to know. Perhaps this revelation would discourage the seven churches of Asia Minor if they heard it. 
Kind of like when someone in a movie has a premonition of the world's end or their companion's intimate death, and they keep this vision secret because they know it will be harmful for others to know. This command to withhold some part of the vision suggests that the book of Revelation is not intended to unlock every secret of the future, but rather to deliver an important message. We are told that this seven trumpet, once it is sounded, the mystery of God will reach its end point or completion, literally its teleos. I think the angel is saying that the great mystery of life and God, which we all experience, will be resolved once this seventh trumpet sounds, and we'll see that towards the end of this podcast. To receive this revelation, John must eat a little scroll, which tastes sweet but makes him feel sick afterwards. This image suggests that the contents of the scroll will contain justice, the very justice for which John and his fellow witnesses have been longing. Yet, this justice will bring more pain. As we read on, the contents of the little scroll will be revealed, but for now, this bittersweet experience mirrors the experience of sin and mimetic rivalry, which always disappoints us. Perhaps John's companions have made an idol out of their desired object of revenge. The people who have been slayed upon the altar of mimetic rivalry cry out to God day and night for this vengeance, suggesting they have become fixated upon it. Yet like all idols, the desired object of revenge leaves John and his companions ultimately unfulfilled and even feeling sick. Maybe John and his companions need to repent of this idol before they also become consumed with mimetic rivalry. Let's read on now from chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some people of the tribes and languages and the nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, The breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. 
And they went up to the heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Okay, so there's a lot of heavy cultural and textual background to fill in here before we start trying to grapple with any sort of imagery in this text, so bear with me. In the ancient world, gods lived in temples. According to the Hebrew scriptures, the God of Israel dwells in the holiest part of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant resides. Access to this area was extremely limited, with only the high priest being allowed to enter once a year as part of the Atonement Day ritual, that is in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. Outside the holiest area was the holy area, where the priests and Levites could go as they served keeping lamps burning and replacing the bread of presents and other odd jobs that needed to be done. I'm not going into all these details now, but notice as we move out from God's presence in the holiest place, some people with specialized training and skills are allowed to perform a specific role, but not everyone. The outer court surrounding the temple was where the common people were allowed to go and offer their sacrifices upon the altar. So as we get closer to God's presence in the center of the temple, access becomes more and more restricted, mainly to protect everyone from the primitive sacred at the center of the structure. God's supposed presence or the primitive sacred is like the bullseye at the center of the temple complex. Even though the primitive sacred has the power to bestow blessing upon people, it is also extremely dangerous if approached in the wrong manner. Priests are specially trained and equipped to harness the primitive sacred's power for good while avoiding the curse of divine violence. Much like workers in a nuclear power plant, the priesthood performs a highly specialized and dangerous role to benefit the entire community. If the divine sacred is approached in the wrong way, the entire community could be destroyed. According to mimetic theory, the whole concept of the primitive sacred around which ancient temples were constructed is conceived through mimetic rivalry. In previous podcasts, we have discussed how imitating others desire for an object brings us into conflict with them and inspires others to join this conflict. As more and more people imitate our desire and join in the conflict, a mimetic crisis is conceived in which people fight against all others over the desired object. We have already seen this mechanism in Revelation as the kings of the earth go to war with one another over the common desired object of political power and dominance. The all against all rivalry of the mimetic crisis only generates more and more bloodshed as everyone imitates the violence of everyone else. If this cycle is allowed to continue, an entire civilization would wipe themselves out through acts of mimetic bloodshed. Yet, out of this anarchy, community, religion, and culture are born. 
in the distress of the mimetic crisis, someone blames another person for the crisis. Then another person imitates this accusation, then another and another until eventually the entire community bands together to persecute a single individual who they believe is the cause of the crisis. The community's common belief in this individual's guilt reinforces itself as the community becomes a kind of echo chamber, consolidating and confirming the individual as their enemy and the cause of the crisis. Through this process, the community begins to view this individual as a monster, the very personification of evil itself. Convinced of this monster's guilt, the community then execute their scapegoat in a frenzied act of mob violence, as the all-against-all dynamic of mimetic violence is transformed into an all-against-one communal execution. In this way, the very same imitation and violence which divided the community and precipitated the mimetic crisis in the first place now resolves the crisis by uniting the community against a single scapegoat. We have seen this dynamic, which mimetic theorists call the scapegoat mechanism, throughout our study of John's Gospel and the book of Genesis. As the community vent their violent impulses upon the scapegoat, they experience a strange cathartic peace. No longer is everyone at war with everyone else, but the community now function and cooperate with one another. The community attribute this newfound peace and order to their scapegoat, who they assume is divine because this scapegoat has transcended the realm of the dead to bestow blessing upon them. This assumption casts the scapegoat as the very personification of both good and evil. In their lifetime, the scapegoat is viewed as a monster, but in death, the scapegoat bestows blessing and peace upon the community. It's no accident that the primitive sacred which develops out of this original founding scapegoat murder also becomes the very personification of good and evil around which the temple structure is built. According to Girard, this experience and assumption is the mother of all religion and culture. In time, temples are built to house and honour the deified scapegoat, and rituals are developed as the community attempt to rediscover the catharsis experienced through the original collective foundational murder. To maintain peace and order, the temple machine requires an endless parade of scapegoats, which Revelation chapter 11 illustrates. John is told to measure the temple and its worshippers. In apocalyptic literature, the idea of measuring a structure like a city or a temple means to assess its morality and integrity. Remember, we are looking forward to the mystery of God being resolved here soon when the seventh trumpet is blown. And I think John's measuring of the temple, the central part of it, not what people are doing on the outer skirts of it, but what is in the middle, what is God's essence, that is an important part of this revelation. As we read on, 
The vision that follows reveals the dark secret underlying the Jerusalem temple and sacrificial system of John's day. John is told to forget the outer court because it will be trampled by the Gentiles for 42 months or 1260 days. The two numbers are the same, of course. They represent a parallelism referring to the same period of time. Scholars generally equate this period to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 common era. This reading has the advantage of anchoring the vision in its immediate historical context and its role as a letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor. However, there is a small problem with this interpretation. This vision tells of two prophets, two witnesses, who go and spread their message to the community. These two prophets expose the dark secret underlying the Jerusalem temple and foretell its imminent destruction. For this reason, I think these two witnesses are better viewed as two prophets proclaiming the imminent demise of Israel's sacrificial system with the temple's destruction in 70 CE. They rebuke the worshippers at the temple for trampling the courts. They are acting like the nations. They are not acting like respectable, pious Jews. They are telling them that their conduct is violent and unacceptable and will ultimately precipitate a mimetic crisis. Why does John give us this image of two witnesses? Why not one? Why not 600? Probably because Jewish law requires at least two witnesses to constitute an adequate testimony. These two people stand before the Lord, just like the 144,000 people we met earlier, while the rest of the community engage in mimetic rivalry with one another. For this reason, the two witnesses stand apart from the crowd and are swiftly executed as communal scapegoats. Notice, though, that the beast is blamed for killing these two witnesses. John personifies the mimetic rivalry of the crowd as a beast, which deceives and animates the people of the earth to vent their mimetic rivalries upon a common scapegoat. As they do so, the mimetic crisis is resolved and peace and order are restored. In a new show of reconciliation, the community rejoice and exchange gifts with one another. They do not allow the witnesses to be buried, but gaze upon their bodies, suggesting religious awe as the community enjoy the peace bestowed upon them by their late scapegoat. Perhaps the community fear that this peace will dissipate if the witnesses' carcasses are buried. They hold on to these carcasses as a symbol, a sacred icon of holiness and deity. We see this picture in the dual nature of the scapegoat as both the personification of good and evil. While the witnesses torment the people of the earth in life, in death, they bestow peace and blessing upon them. The scapegoat's ability to transcend the realm of the dead is seen as the two witnesses, like Jesus before them, are resurrected, standing upon their feet. In this way, the two witnesses follow Jesus' path as they are executed by the violent mob 
but subsequently resurrected three days later. The two witnesses encouraged the churches of Asia Minor to remain steadfast in their faith with the hope of being resurrected and glorified, just as Jesus was before them. The two witnesses are associated with another famous scapegoat, Elijah. In the Jewish tradition, Elijah was a very famous and highly revered prophet. The imagery of two witnesses stopping rain mirrors Elijah's experience as he allowed a drought in the days of King Ahab. Steeped in idolatry and mimetic rivalry, King Ahab pursues Elijah and attempts to kill him. Despite the persecution he experiences, Elijah perseveres in his prophetic calling until he is finally transported into the sky in a heavenly chariot. This event is recalled by the imagery of the two witnesses being lifted up into the sky in Revelation chapter 11. The image of two witnesses striking the land with plagues also recalls Moses' role as he led the Israelite people out of Egypt in the Exodus narrative. John likens this violent place of scapegoating to Egypt and Sodom, two bastions of mimetic rivalry in the Hebrew Bible. The Exodus narrative portrays an underlying mimetic crisis. Likewise, as we discussed in the previous podcast, Abraham had to rescue Lot from becoming a scapegoat when a mimetic crisis broke out in Sodom. In both these narratives, excessive mimetic rivalry prompts the community to band together and vent their mimetic violence upon a common scapegoat. In a similar manner, the people of Earth band together to kill these two witnesses, who ultimately represent the faithful churches of Asia Minor. By casting these churches as Elijah and Moses, John encourages his fellow companions to continue in their prophetic calling to liberate the people from the violence and injustice at the heart of Israel's religious temple machine. Notice that soon after the two witnesses ascend into the sky, another mimetic crisis breaks out, signified by the natural disaster imagery of an earthquake. With their scapegoats removed, the community soon look for another victim to execute. This time, 7,000 people die before the violence is finally quenched. Why 7,000? Well, 7,000 is the number of completeness in apocalyptic literature. In other words, the temple system of John's day slaughtered as many victims as it needed to to achieve peace and order through the scapegoat mechanism. Again, those who survive were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That is, the community experienced the catharsis as they vented their mimetic violence upon their surrogate victims, and this experience cultivated a religious awe of the primitive sacred. The scapegoat mechanism works. It restores peace and order in times of crisis, and perhaps that's why it's been so powerful, so effective, and so prevalent throughout history. But the dark side is that this machine is very blood-hungry. The narrative of the two witnesses exposes the violence and destruction underlying ancient Israel's temple and sacrificial system. 
Let's read on now from verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and began to reign. The nations raged, but their wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The praise accompanying the seventh trumpet contrasts the silence experienced when the seventh seal was removed. Recall that the seven seals revealed the results of mimetic violence as kings engage in mimetic rivalry with each other over the desired object of political power and authority. The scene is one of utter destruction and futility. God seems inactive and disengaged as heaven is silent for about half an hour. The seven trumpets have revealed the inhabitants of the world suffering the natural consequences of mimetic rivalry. In response to this revelation, God is praised. We saw the two witnesses vindicated through their death and resurrection, and the inhabitants of the earth were left to suffer the fruit of their endless violence. In this way, the nations of the earth fall, in contrast to God's kingdom, which stands forever. The Hingham of Praise also states that the time has come to judge the dead for their works. This is another common theme of apocalyptic literature, a final judgment in which the evil are punished while the righteous are rewarded. This final judgment is important to all those who are suffering and seem helpless and hopeless against their powerful oppressors. These people look forward to God's intervention and justice. As the 24 elders sing their song, the temple in heaven is opened and God's true essence is revealed. As the curtains of the holy place are pulled back, a very different God is revealed to the primitive sacred who demands the endless sacrifice of scapegoats. The true God of heaven who cares for the persecuted and brings justice is revealed. This revelation marks a tectonic shift in religious thought, symbolized in this passage by apocalyptic imagery of upheaval, namely lightning, thunder, an earthquake, and great hail. This shift is the mystery of God, which the angel promised would be resolved. No longer must people be enslaved to the primitive sacred, projecting their own rivalry onto God, because the mystery of God's true nature has now been revealed. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.